abasement and marginalization and pressure and suffering, how do we respond as Christians? Do we respond with outspoken animosity, sharp words, harsh language? Do we return evil for evil when we suffer in this world? Do we respond by fighting up, fighting and standing up for our rights? Do we respond with frustration and despair? What about rugged, stoic determination to get through this? Do the anchors on talk radio or Sky News model an appropriate Christian response to pressures from encroaching heathenism? Is faithfully plodding on the truly Christian response? How we respond to these pressures may say more about what a Christian is than the message that we proclaim. I just want to say that again. How we respond to these pressures often says more about what a Christian is than the message that we proclaim. What is Christian about our Christianity? How does a follower of Christ respond to these pressures? And that's one element that the book of 1 Peter develops for us. 1 Peter is a book that tells us what it means to live as a Christian under pressure in this world. And the principle that we're going to find this morning is summed up for us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. 1 Peter 5 verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This passage, 1 Peter 5 verse 10, is actually an, a, 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 a summation of the entire book of 1 Peter. Peter picks up in this verse six of the seven major themes in the book of 1 Peter, and he weaves them together into a stunning encapsulation of the entire book of 1 Peter. What is 1 Peter all about? What we're going to do now is we're going to look at several of those themes throughout the book of 1 Peter, so we're going to turn back and forth, lots of page turning, okay? We're going to look at them, and we're going to try to put them together and understand the principle, and then we're going to see what, what Peter himself exhorts us to do with that principle, okay? So turn back to chapter 1, verse 1. The first thing we need to notice is who First Peter is written to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. First Peter was written to exiles. These are probably Jewish believers and proselytes who were present at Pentecost. The locations here in chapter 1, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, and so on, all of these locations are actually mentioned in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches to the Jewish proselytes who have come, and many of them embrace Christ. And they live in Jerusalem for a time. But persecution arises in Jerusalem, and so they are scattered. They are exiled among the nations, as it were, just as Israel in the Old Testament was scattered amongst the nations. And so, 
Peter writes an epistle to them. And interestingly, this same group of people from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these are the exact groups of people to whom James writes his epistle in James chapter 1 and verse 1. Now that James who wrote that epistle was the pastor of these people in Jerusalem before he was beheaded. And so it seems reasonable for us to assume that Peter's writing to people who used to be members of the church in Jerusalem, but now have been scattered abroad because of persecution. They had been scattered because of persecution that had arisen against Christ's people in Jerusalem, and now they're facing persecution in their own home countries of Pontus, Galatia, and so on. And what does Peter have to say to these exiles? Well, the first thing he says to them is that they are, in verse 1, exiles. That's not a pleasant experience, to be an exile from your country. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Sorry, chapter 2 and verse 12. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. These people are being spoken against. Look at verse 18 in chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. These believers were subject to unjust masters. Verse 19, they were enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. Chapter 2, verse 20, they were being beaten for it. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives are being subject to unbelieving husbands. What kind of pressure does a wife face from an unbelieving husband? Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? Chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Chapter 3, verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Chapter 3, verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Chapter 4, verse 4. With respect to this, they, that would be unbelievers, are surprised when you do not run with them, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. It's very picturesque language, I think. They look at you as though you were from another planet when you refuse to join them in their wickedness, and they vilify you. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian. The first thing Peter has a lot to say about is that we suffer as believers. It's a fact of the Christian life that we suffer. And there's three things that we need to observe about this suffering. We're in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Let's read 15 and 16, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The first thing about this suffering is that it is for Christ's sake, not for our sin. If you murder someone and suffer for it, Peter says, what good is that? You deserved it. But what about if you're a Christian and you suffer for it? 
That's the suffering Peter has in view. The second thing to observe about this suffering is in chapter 3 and verse 17. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why do Christians suffer? Is it the world's fault? Well, yes. Why do Christians suffer? In this country, there has been largely an absence of suffering. Christians have not suffered in this country like they have throughout church history, like they have in other countries today. What makes us to differ? Why do they suffer in North Korea today? Why are they being beheaded in Iran today? And the answer is the will of God. God has willed that it would be so. This suffering comes to us from the hand of God, ultimately. And the third thing to notice is in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. In this you rejoice, that would be in this suffering. Though now, I'm sorry, in, in the, the inheritance that we have, we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Though now for a little while, the suffering is temporary. Why does Peter say the suffering is temporary? And the reason why is because of the second theme that we want to look at in the book of First Peter. Look at the next verse, verse 7. You have been grieved by various trials, yet you rejoice so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven on that day that we expect, when he returns in power and glory, believers whose faith has proven genuine will receive praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's not Christ receiving praise and glory and honor. That's you receiving praise and glory and honor if your faith proves genuine. Think about that. What must it be to be raised from the dead up into the glory of heaven? You know, we look at the parable in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who dies and goes to Hades. He can see Abraham. What must it be before all of those who have persecuted us to stand in glory and they gaze across that abyss to see us in glory, raised up by Jesus Christ. That is our destination, future glory, praise, honor, when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. Chapter 4, verse 14 If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What does he mean by the spirit of glory? Look at verse 13, just the previous verse. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God, and of God rests upon you. We read this verse in Romans 8. The spirit of God who raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you. He will raise you up also. So what does Peter mean when he says that the spirit of glory rests on you? He means the spirit who raised up Christ and gave him glory, he rests on you. What do you think he's going to do to you? The spirit of glory rests on you. And you too will receive glory when Christ is revealed. Just look down at the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker. Peter says he is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What does Peter think the end of the road is for him? Glory. In chapter 5, verse 10, our text this morning. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Peter identifies what this glory is that we anticipate in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where he says that believers have been born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This glory is what's going to be revealed in the last time. We are guarded for a salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. What is that salvation? Verse 9 of chapter 1, it is the outcome of our faith, the full and final salvation of our souls when we enter into heaven's bliss. This is the goal that every believer will arrive at. This is the end of our path. Suffering and glory. But Peter has something more to say to us about suffering. Not only does he tell us that we suffer now for a while under the will of God, but you're in 1 Peter 1, look at verse 11. 1 Peter 1, verse 11. The prophets from verse 10, inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. In the book of 1 Peter, Christians are not the only people who suffer. Christ suffered also. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered, also, in addition to you. You're not the only one suffering. Christ also suffered. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Do you know, it's interesting that Peter says he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ because Peter wasn't there when Christ was crucified. He'd run off, remember that? Peter wasn't at the cross. John was, but not Peter. But Peter says he witnessed the sufferings of Christ. What did he witness? Apparently it wasn't the cross. Apparently it was Christ's whole life 
of suffering and shame and persecution and rejection and pain. Christ suffers in the book of 1 Peter. But turn back to chapter 1 and verse 11. Christians suffer, Christ suffered. We expect to arrive at glory and look at chapter 1 verse 11. The prophets inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Not only is glory our destination, it was Christ as well. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 20, we'll start there. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory. It's what came after the resurrection. Glory for Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. In chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and he is, a part, he is to be a partaker in the glory that will be revealed. Whose glory will be revealed? Peter says, I witness the sufferings of Christ. I'm going to partake in the glory that will be revealed. But if you connect chapter 5, verse 1 with chapter 4, verse 13, it's Christ's glory that's going to be revealed. And Peter says, I get to be part of that. The Christian suffers and the end of his road is glory. Christ suffered, and the end of his road was glory. Now, what we've done so far in 1 Peter, hopefully that wasn't too tedious looking at all of that. We've merely been observing the data on the page. Okay? Everything we've seen so far lies just on the surface of 1 Peter. Anybody who reads it will see that the word suffering shows up. Glory shows up lots of times. In fact, a computer can tell you that, that glory is a big word in 1 Peter. Peter smacks us frequently with these themes. They appear frequently. And so what we have seen so far takes only minimal engagement to see and to follow. Really, anybody could get what we've seen so far. But now we need to gird up the loins of our mind and think deeply about this question. Why do these four themes show up in the same book? Why does Peter put them together? And that's a big question that we need to answer, and here's why. Because many Christians who experience sufferings and pressures for their faith would never write a book like 1 Peter. They might write a book about their sufferings, but many Christians, very few of those Christians, would weave the bright threads of glory throughout their book about suffering like Peter has. They might talk about getting to heaven one day, but their voices are listless and dull when they speak about that hope. It seems less like a confident expectation and more like a dream of a vague and distant fantasy world. It seems to affect their emotional state now about as little as the thought of what's happening in Santa's workshop at the North Pole right now. That's 
a nice thought for kids, but we live in the real world. And such Christians would never include in their book about their sufferings the theme of Christ's own suffering and glory. In the midst of their suffering, their eyes seldom turn in that direction to think about Christ and his suffering. In other words, the fact that Peter crams these themes together into a single book ought to intrigue us. It ought to cause us to earnestly search out what the connection is between them and our present sufferings. Do they even belong in the same book? Why does Peter think they belong together? How does Peter fit them together? What is the relationship between suffering and glory, between our suffering and Christ's suffering? What is the relationship? How do they fit together? And what we're going to work through now in the next 20 minutes in order to answer those questions is something that you will only grasp with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not that these things are particularly hard to understand, but the Spirit has been given to us to disclose to us the things of Christ. And so, without His help, the things of Christ will not be disclosed to us. And so what we're going to work through now is going to mean nearly nothing to you without the Spirit of God. But with his help, these things will breathe hope and joy and light and life into us who are beleaguered believers. Christ will become precious. His promises will become sure. And our hope in God will flame up as a brightly glowing ember of light in a very dark world. Only God can work the supernatural. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to do that in our hearts. Lord God, you have given us these things. Christ is so far away from us up in heaven. His glory is perceived by us only by faith. And our inheritance in him is a matter of faith also. We do not see the end of our road yet. And so I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit that through the words of this book, he might grant us faith. That faith would come by hearing the word concerning Jesus Christ. And I pray that he would show us the weight and significance of Christ and his life and how that impacts us and ours. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've looked at suffering, glory. In 1 Peter, they always go together in a particular order every time. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. The testing of our faith under trials results in glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. The prophets inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What comes first? The glories or the suffering? The suffering comes first and then the glories. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. 
Chapter 3, 18 through 22 is one of the hottest passages in the New Testament to understand, in my opinion. I'm not going to get down into the weeds of what it means, but look at what Peter says here. Chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, suffering the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he suffer? To bring us to God. Put to death suffering in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What did he proclaim? I think he proclaimed the good news of his resurrection, his triumph. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? To Christ. Suffering. And then glory, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. You see what Peter's saying? Christ comes. He suffers. Resurrection goes up into heaven, begins by proclaiming his victory to the spirits in prison goes up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God with all the glory that is attendant upon him because of that. Baptism corresponds to that. What does baptism look like? Death, followed by resurrection. It's why Baptists baptize by immersion because pouring does not symbolize the death and the rising again to new life, to live, to glory. Baptism corresponds to the pattern of Christ's life. And you must be baptized. Every believer must be baptized. Why? Because that's the pattern that his life is going to take. His life is going to correspond to Christ's. Chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 1. And we just read that. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered has ceased from sin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Peter is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, if he's witnessed it, it's already past, right? So think of Peter, past sufferings, and a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter stands between the sufferings of Christ and the glory that's going to be revealed. He looks back to one and forward to the other because the suffering came first and then the glory. In chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, God will himself restore you and bring you to glory. There's an indisputable order in the, to the two in 1 Peter. Suffering always precedes glory. But Peter is actually more explicit about the relationship between suffering and glory in the book than that. It's indisputable that Christ's life trajectory, the pattern, the, the, the path of his life, his career, the way that it went, it's indisputable that in his case, suffering was followed by glory. The chronology of his life shows us that it did. The cross came first and then the resurrection and the exaltation. But in this book, Peter views the suffering then glory model of Christ's life as true of the Christian's life as well. 
Who experiences suffering followed by glory in the book of 1 Peter? Well, both Christ and Christians. But Peter is actually even more explicit about the connection between suffering and glory path of Christ and the fact that our experience is similar. The fact that the two, Christ suffering than glory, our suffering than glory, the fact that the two parallel each other isn't just by chance. It's not just happenstance. It was actually designed by God to be that way. And this point is made repeatedly throughout the book that Christ has left us a prototype of suffering and then glory. Christ's path is not simply a model for us to follow, a path to walk behind him and to do what he did. Christ actually has left us a railroad track that we will follow regardless of which direction we might try to steer the steering wheel. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called. To what? Verse 20, to doing good and suffering for it. You were called to that by God. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That word example is very much like our word prototype. It's actually used, you think of children who are learning to write their letters of the alphabet, learning to trace the A, to form it just right on the page. How did they do that in ancient times? They would take a sharp stylus, soft piece of clay, and they would actually make the indentation. And then they would bake the clay, so it's hard. And now all the kid did was pick up the feather, stick it in there, and learn by the feather following the path that the master had traced. That's what Christ has done. Christ came and wrote the letter on the clay tablet. It's been baked. And his pattern is what every Christian must now trace. You were called to this. He left you a pattern, a prototype, so that you might follow in his steps. He's not saying, get up and follow in his steps. He's saying, it's going to happen. You will follow in his steps. And this is why Peter says what he does in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 4, 1. We just went through that. Christ suffered and went up into glory. Baptism corresponds to that. The baptism you've received. Your life's pattern will follow his Christ suffers and dies, rises up into glory. Baptism tells you that your life will follow the same pattern. Through much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom of God. This is actually the single thing that Paul exhorts new believers with on his first missionary journey. If, if you find a new believer, what's the first thing you want to teach him? The first thing Paul taught in Acts chapter 13 was this. Now, new believers, I want to tell you one thing. You're going to enter into the kingdom of God through much tribulation. It's the first thing they needed to know, apparently. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, rejoice. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed because the spirit of glory rests on you. In chapter 4 verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian. 
That doesn't mean you're suffering and you happen to be a Christian. It means you're suffering as a Christian, following in the path of Christ. We suffer according to the paradigm of Christ as Christians. And so in the book of 1 Peter, Christ's career path of suffering then glory is a prototype, a paradigm, a model of the career path of every Christian. The trajectory of the career path Christ took is the trajectory we must expect our lives to follow also of suffering and then glory. Why did Christ die? Why did he die publicly? Why do the Gospels spend so much time focused on his death? Why does that event show up repeatedly in the rest of the New Testament? It was so that we might know what our life will look like. Christ's own life and career become a paradigm for our own. He trod the path of suffering that he did in order that we might look upon his life and know something about the pattern our own life will take. And so glory is as certain for you as Christ's resurrection, just as sufferings are as certain for you as his cross. Why? Because 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God has called us to his glory in Christ Jesus. And this may be the most important phrase in the entire New Testament, in Christ Jesus. It may be the most important phrase when it comes to the question of how we live our lives as Christians in every circumstance. We are united to Christ. He is the head. We are the body. He is the vine. We are the branches. What he experiences, we will also. Suffering, then glory. And what Peter does with this in the book of 1 Peter is really astonishing because these truths have power in the book of 1 Peter, the power of suffering and then glory. And there are two things that Peter says these truths produce in us. What must you do if this is the pattern of your life? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. These two things as we finish up here. 1 Peter chapter 1, the first thing that suffering then glory means is that you must hope, you must expect what he received. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And I want to pause and observe that according to chapter 1 verse 2, you too were foreknown. His career, his trajectory started out with foreknowledge. Yours did too. What path did it take? Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Why did he appear publicly on earth? Why was he made manifest for your sake? How so? Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world, was manifest in these last times for our sake, that's why we saw him publicly displayed upon the cross, for our sake, so that our hope would be in God. You see the connection? In looking at what God did for Christ, our faith in God is bolstered and our hope flourishes. 
because we expect God to do for us what he did for Christ. Under pressure, pressure that may lead to death, our hope nevertheless rises because if we are suffering as he did, we can be confident we shall be glorified as he was. It was late on that afternoon of the Passover when they took Jesus' body down from the cross and buried it in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea had seen to the burial, but the Jewish leaders felt the need to post guards at the tomb nevertheless. He had, he had foretold that he would rise again, they said. And I can imagine the scene in heaven that afternoon as the laughter of God rolled down the hallways of heaven. Just three days, God must have exclaimed to the angels, just three days. And then I'm going to raise him up, gods or no gods. I'm going to tear the grave to pieces because I vindicate my own. Nothing triumphs over my people if I can help it, says God. I follow their sufferings with glory. And from this day forward, the day of resurrection, from this day forward, God said, my people are going to hope in me. That's what he says. Look at verse 21. He was made manifest. He raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your hope would be in God. God manifested Christ and raised him from the dead so that we might have hope in our sufferings. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How do we have hope in tribulations? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was the turning point for Christ. Suffering, 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 death, resurrection, glory. The resurrection is what gives us hope that our sufferings will turn the corner, turn upward into glory. Christ's resurrection assures and gives us hope. The shape of Christ's career that concluded on this earth in resurrection and exaltation gives us hope. In other words, Christian suffering is not simply gritting one's teeth. It isn't simply refusing to budge under pressure. It's not simply refusing to change under any circumstances. It isn't being incorrigible or hard. It isn't simply plodding on. It isn't standing up for myself. Christian suffering is suffering as a Christian with a self-conscious expectation and understanding that our lives will follow the career path of Christ. Suffering as a Christian means deriving the patience and fortitude to withstand and endure, not from within ourselves, but by looking at Christ in his resurrection. And so therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself, with the same way of thinking. Have this mindset in yourselves. Arm yourself with the mindset Christ had in the cauldron of suffering. Expect that the trajectory of your career as a Christian will follow the same path his did. Suffer as he has suffered, all the while expecting glory. 
Glory is as certain for you as his resurrection, just as suffering is as certain for you as his cross. And so Christians suffer in hope. Hope that is nourished by setting our eyes upon the resurrected Lord Jesus. And in this, we differ dramatically from unbelievers. You know, the world suffers pressures. We all do. There are plenty of conservative Catholics who are not true Christians. They don't like the encroachment of our culture upon them. They suffer for standing up for truth at work too. But they don't suffer that pressure and hope. They have no genuine hope of resurrection. But a Christian who suffers in hope shows that he believes in the resurrection. This is why you've got to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. Because only if Christ rose can you suffer and live as a Christian. The resurrection makes a difference as to how we suffer. Christians fasten their eyes upon the cross and the resurrection and they suffer for Christ then in triumph and hope. And in this way, we glorify God. So let all those who suffer as Christians entrust themselves, their affairs, their well-being, their life, their eternity to the one who judges righteously. We are not the judges of this world's injustices. God is, and he sets it all straight, so hope in him. The second thing that this means in the book of 1 Peter is submission. If suffering is followed by glory, then we must submit. We must act as he acted. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ gives us an example here of submitting himself to the horrors of the cross. How could he do that? The secret was that he entrusted himself and his situation to the one who judges righteously. And God displayed his righteousness and his justice in the resurrection for us to see. An innocent man unjustly condemned and God reversed the verdict. He said, it is unjust that will not stand in my kingdom. I will raise the one who was unjustly condemned. And thus Christ's situation shows us that if we believe in a God who raises his own from the dead, then we can submit ourselves to human authorities, be they just or unjust. And that's what Peter does in this book. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Christ was to Pilate. Most Christians today would not subject themselves to Pilate or to the religious leaders. But Paul, Peter says, Be subject to every human institution, whether to the emperor or governors as sent by him to punish those who do well. This is the will of God. Chapter 2, verse 18, Servants. 
must subject themselves to their own masters, whether to the good and gentle or to the unjust. Don't have to stand up for yourself and make, settle the score and make it all right. God does that because glory follows suffering. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives must subject themselves to their own husbands. You don't have to set everything right with your husband. You don't have to make him a Christian. You don't even have to vindicate Christianity before him by proving to him that you're right and he's wrong. You can submit yourself and without a word from you, he may be one, Peter says, as he beholds a conduct that he cannot explain. A conduct of subjection and submission that entrusts itself to God. It must say there's something coming if you don't have to set it all right now. It must say to him, there is hope of a resurrection if you're not intent on getting it all fixed up right now. That speaks volumes to an unbelieving husband. Chapter 3, verse 7. Why, husbands, likewise, must subject themselves to their wives and to their own needs, living with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel. In chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you subject yourself to one another with humility, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. You can be a doormat. Let people walk all over you if the resurrection is actually going to happen. If this world is all there is, you've got to get everything settled and score straight and everything balanced out by the time you die, but not if Jesus is going to raise you from the dead. If he is, then you can be content to give and give and give and give and expect the return after death. Expect Jesus Christ to set it all right. So in this world, it shouldn't all add up. It won't. Because this world is not all there is. If we believe in the resurrection, then we can be content living abased lives of suffering and deprivation and pressure. We don't have to fight for ourselves or our rights or our place. We can suffer but not threaten. All because of the resurrection hope in Jesus Christ that glory follows suffering. So let's read chapter 5, verse 10 again. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Think about those four words written to exiles. You see the word restore, will himself restore? That means he's going to put everything right for you. See the word confirm? It's actually a word that's used, to res used of restoring someone's health and vigor and strength. You ever feel like you can barely get your head above water sometimes? You're barely holding on. Imagine being restored to full health and vigor and strength. It's coming. See the word strengthen? Just means to fortify you. Imagine a person in a strong tower. That'll be you one day. You are now. You just don't see it. But you'll find it one day through the resurrection of Christ. And he will settle you. To exiles, Peter says, he will establish you in a secure place of refuge. 
and residence, that eternal city that we expect. And so, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. You want a God like that in charge of the world? You want to offer up to him all the dominion? The Christian is one who trusts God in Christ. Glory is as certain for you as his resurrection, just as sufferings are as certain for you as his cross. To live in any other way calls into question whether you're actually a Christian. If you're intent on settling the score now, getting everything you can out of life the first time around, if you're intent on making your life everything that you want it to be before you die, you are not a Christian. But God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him glory and took him up into heaven to say to all the world, this is what happens to people who subject themselves to my will. This is what happens to people who trust in God to deliver them. So look at Christ and his cross. Look at Christ in the empty tomb. It is a verifiable historical fact that he was not in the tomb after three days. Where did he go? Up into glory. Eyewitnesses saw it, 500 of them. It was God saying to us, this is the Lord. This is what I do to those who trust in me. Our hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and suffering as a Christian means suffering with our eyes fastened upon our Savior, arming ourselves with his mindset and strengthened by the hope we see in the path he walked of suffering and then glory. Lord God, thank you for giving us this book and for these themes, for the way that you intend that they strengthen our heart. Lord, help us to look at the cross of Christ and to identify ourselves with him in his sufferings and death. Help us to look at the resurrection and expect in hope that we too will inherit and receive glory. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a blessed time of fellowship now, and we ask in Christ's name.